0: So welcome to this next section of our Understanding the Mass series. Um, With this, we are moving forward. We've gotten a basic sense of what the Mass is, that the Mass is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, made present to us through sacramental signs at the altar. And that we, as members of the mystical body of Christ, are to be participating in that sacrifice at Mass. And in doing so, we are glorifying God, which is the primary purpose, and then secondarily, we ourselves, through glorifying God, are being blessed. We are benefiting from doing this kind of worship of our Heavenly Father. And so, with the celebration of the Mass, Um, Sometimes it can be hard for us to keep the main point in mind, which is why I brought it up again at the beginning of this next part, um, that that's what the Mass is about. Uh, Before I go any further, let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit down upon all of us here, that we may have open minds and hearts to all that you wish to share with us during our time together, that we may go deeper into the mystery of this celebration and be better able to participate in worship and celebrate you in future masses. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, So... When we think about the Mass and its celebration, we do have something that helps us. We have our Breaking Bread hymnals. You might think, well, what is the hymnal going to do for us? Maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not, but at the very front of it, it has the order of the Mass. So if you don't know, like, what are the words, what are the phrases, what are the positions we're supposed to be taking, it's actually in the book. Um, and so, As I walk us through the first parts of the Mass, um, you can follow along in the book if that would be helpful to you. When we think of the structure of the Mass, we touched about that a little bit in the Q&A last time, um, that we have two major parts, that is the Liturgy of the Word and then the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, But there's four basic parts. There are two minor parts that act kind of like bookends to that, and that's the introductory rites, and the concluding rites. So we have those four parts. If we wanted to summarize the whole celebration, we could summarize it into those four parts of Mass. Um, And in those different parts, we have different things that happen. So in the introductory rites, we have the procession, the sign of the cross, the penitential act, the Lord have mercy, the Gloria, and the Collect. And then after that, when we all sit, Then we start the Liturgy of the Word, where we have our Biblical readings from Sacred Scripture, and we would have a first reading, a responsorial psalm, a second reading. We sing the Gospel acclamation, and then we have the Gospel. Following the Gospel, there is a homily, and then uh, the creed and the prayers of the faithful. And that's what we're going to try to cover in more depth today, this beginning half of the Mass, kind of going step by step, going deeper into the meaning and the ways and the places that these things come from, and how we are to go in our celebration deeper into into what we are doing. So um, before we even start, when we first come in, we will probably notice that there's these little things of water near the entrances. And we call them Holy Water Fonts. And it's a reminder of our baptism. So we were baptized into Christ by passing through the waters of baptism. We have our baptismal font kind of tucked in the corner over there. um, And we pull it out for baptisms. And when we enter the church building, it is a reminder of how we entered into the church that is the community of believers. And we did that through baptism. So we have these holy water fonts to remind us of our baptism when we first enter into the church. And so we dip our fingers in there and we make the sign of the cross. And the sign of the cross, in a way, is a summary of our faith, that the God of the universe sent his only Son to give up his life for us, to make up for all of the sins of all of humanity for all time, so that we would have the opportunity to be with him forever in heaven. We are baptized into this faith, We have that summary of faith made when we make the sign of the cross. And so uh, we are reminded of that when we first come into the church. And in a way, we are renewing our baptism and the fact that Christ has claimed us for his own. Then when we um, come forward and we find our place, wherever it is that we want to sit in the church, uh, we have the pews. And before we go and sit in the pew, we typically genuflect to the tabernacle. Now, I talked a lot about that in a recent homily, but uh, for those who may not have heard about it, um, genuflecting is a way that we lower ourselves, we humble ourselves, uh, we submit ourselves to the one who is greater, to our Lord Jesus Christ in the tabernacle. Now, not every church has the tabernacle front and center like we do. Some churches may have the tabernacle off to the side, in which case, what are you supposed to do? Uh, You're still supposed to genuflect to Jesus in the tabernacle, because that's the point of genuflecting, recognizing the one who's greater. So if Jesus is off on one of the sides, then when you genuflect, you face wherever Jesus is. Now, what do you do if you go to a place and the tabernacle is in a side chapel and not in the main part of the church? Because Jesus isn't readily there. Well, what you can do is then bow to the altar. In fact, that's what we're called to do when we come to the Triduum, those three special days at the end of Holy Week, when Jesus is no longer in the tabernacle as part of the celebration. He, uh, the Blessed Sacrament is moved elsewhere. Then if we come into the church, we're not supposed to genuflect because Jesus isn't there. Instead, we bow to the altar, which is the second most important, most sacred thing in the church. Obviously, Jesus himself is more important, but the the altar is a sign or symbol of Jesus and many other things, as I mentioned last time. So, for example, if you went to the new cathedral um, in St. Louis, they have their tabernacle in a side chapel. Some people, when they first enter, they genuflect to the tabernacle, even though they can't see it, but they generally know where it is in the side chapel. Um, And then when they go to the pews, they bow to the altar and sit in the pews. So if you watch how they do it at the cathedral, you'll notice that they always bow to the altar. It's because Jesus is not there front and center like we have him here, but he's in the tabernacle off to the side. So... We genuflect as a way of lowering ourselves, a way of showing respect and submission to the God of the universe who is truly present with us in the Eucharist. Oftentimes people, when, as soon as they get into the pew, they would sit or kneel and pray. And this is a great way to prepare for Mass. It's good for us to come a little early because sometimes we can easily get distracted during Mass. Mass. Sometimes we're just going from one thing to the next so quickly, so rapidly by the time we get here and we're actually trying to like stop and calm down, our minds are still racing like crazy and we can't pay attention to what's happening. So if we come a little earlier, then we can calm ourselves down. We can clear our head a little more easily. Um, One of the common things that can distract us is our to-do list. Oh, I got to remember, I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to do this other thing. If we come to Mass a little early, and that to-do list starts to be rolling around in our minds, we can just write that down on a scrap of paper, and we would know. I'm not going to forget, I wrote it down, I know where it is, I don't have to keep bringing it up again and again and again, and distract myself throughout the Mass. So coming early can help us be well prepared for the celebration. Um... So when we actually have the start of Mass, everybody would be standing, and we have an entrance antiphon, or more often, the entrance hymn. And during that, we also have the procession. And the procession typically includes the servers, if there's a deacon present, um, if there's any other ministers who are participating, like a lector, for example, a reader, uh, if you had any acolytes. They would be there if there's any con celebrants, other priests who are also celebrating the mass along with the main celebrant, they would be in the entrance procession. And the entrance procession goes down the main aisle of the church, and it goes through the nave. Um, it might sound like a strange name, but it's actually named after the boat. In, um, in other churches, the roofs would often make a point, and if you like flip that upside down, it's kind of like the bottom of a boat. Um, I don't know why exactly that led to it being called the nave, but it did. And it represents the earth. So the nave represents earth. And so the procession represents our journey here on earth towards heaven. That's what the sanctuary represents. That's what this elevated part of the church represents. with the steps and it has the ambo. It has the altar. It has the tabernacle. It has the presider's chair and the other things previously mentioned. So our journey through earth is being represented in the entrance procession. Sometimes the entrance procession can be shorter. Um, Earth can be represented by the sacristy, and then it can be a very short entrance just into the sanctuary and in front of the altar. But for Sunday celebrations and for other masses, we oftentimes have the full procession for the greater symbolism. But it's still there even if there's a short entry. So we have the entrance procession. And we're all standing. Why are we standing? Um, Part of it is because standing is a position of readiness, a a position of action. It's a position of respect, a position of attention. And what are we attending to? What are we acting upon? Um, It's a way for all the people present to participate in the entrance procession. Um, Obviously, it would take a while if everybody in the church had to go and file through as part of the procession. So the people's participation in the procession is symbolized by standing. The procession is oftentimes led by the processional cross or processional crucifix. It's the sign of Christ, the ultimate sign of love. It should also be the guiding principle of our lives. And so if the procession represents our lives here on earth then we should be following Christ. We should be following his standard. We should be recognizing that our life does have suffering in it, but it's also a life full of love. When the ministers make it into the sanctuary, uh, they line up in front of the altar, and then they genuflect to Jesus in the tabernacle, and then they don't genuflect again until Jesus comes In the Eucharist at the altar. So after that initial genuflection, recognizing Jesus in the tabernacle, the focus shifts to Jesus coming to us at the altar, not Jesus already here in the tabernacle. So that's probably why you've noticed that I genuflect when I first get here, but then other times, walking around, I'm bowing. And I'm bowing to the altar, not to the tabernacle, because the altar is where Jesus is going to come to us. And during the celebration of the Mass, we're anticipating that coming and preparing ourselves for that coming of the Lord. And since the altar is that place where Jesus comes, and we're focusing on Jesus who is coming, we then have the reverence of the altar. The priest and deacon would go up and kiss the altar and then go back down to their seats. But we remain standing. And the other ministers, likewise, take their positions. And when the entrance hymn stops, we have the sign of the cross. And again, that's a summary of our faith. We're actually quoting the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus tells us to go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we are using that formula that Jesus gave us in Scripture. Every time we make the sign of the cross, we're also showing... the the symbol of the cross, which is the means of our salvation. So then the priest greets the people. And typically it's a direct quote from Scripture. The one that I like to use is a quote from St. Paul to his letter to the Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is an elegant, this is a formal greeting. Um, But since it is the actual greeting... A priest is not really supposed to say, hey, everybody, how are you doing? Have a good day. Like, no, that's, there already is a greeting. It's it's part of the mess. So he's quoting scripture. Another phrase that he could use is um, an allusion to scripture. There's many places where this comes from. The Lord be with you. And the obvious response is, and with your spirit. But why is it that we say, and with your spirit? It used to be, and also with you. Well, and also with you, it implies everything's the same, we're all equal, we're all friends, and hopefully we are friends, but um, there is a difference. When we say, and with your spirit, we're referring to the spirit that the minister has received by his ordination, that God has ordained him to do something special at the service of the whole community, to lead everybody in prayer. And so when we say, and with your spirit, we're saying that to an ordained minister, to either the priest or the deacon who prompted us to make that response. And so if there's other liturgies, if there's an extraordinary minister bringing communion to someone, um, they shouldn't use a greeting that prompts someone to say, and with your spirit, because they're not ordained. So they would use a different greeting to the people but we're understanding and recognizing that the priest is given this duty and responsibility, this privilege, to serve the whole community. The next thing we have is the penitential rite. We acknowledge that as we come to the Lord, that we ourselves have fallen short of the holiness that he calls us to, that we've made mistakes, and that we're sorry for these things. Now when we have the penitential rite, there's actually multiple options for what we could do. And you might have noticed that we kind of switch things a little bit from ordinary time into Advent. In ordinary time, we would oftentimes use the invocations, where the priest or deacon would say something like, uh, would say something like, you came, Uh, of course, when it's not the Mass, it's harder for me to remember. You were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord, have mercy, etc. But now that we are in Advent, we're using something that's a little more explicit. We're using the confidior, the the prayer, I confess to Almighty God. And when we go through that prayer, we're making it explicit what we are doing. That we're explicitly acknowledging that we're sinful, that we've made mistakes. We're explicitly saying that it was our fault. We did exercise our free will and we chose poorly. And then we also asked Mary and everyone else present to pray for us. I remember one time during Mass, it suddenly struck me that, it's, that we said that. And I was like, wait, I just asked everybody to pray for me. And, of course, the golden rule, do unto others as you ha- would have them do unto you. So I was like, oh, well, if I'm asking them to pray for me, I should be praying for everybody else, too. And so from that moment forward... During Mass, like after we would say that, I would try to very quickly pray on behalf of everybody else present to God, since that's what I just asked everybody else to do for me. But even before we get to that point, there's that introduction from the priest to recall our sins. And then there should be a brief moment of silence. So in this penitential act, we actually do have a forgiveness of sins the small sins, the venial sins. If it's a major sin, if we're talking about mortal sin, we would need to use the sacrament of confession. But for something minor, for something small like um, saying a white lie to get out of an awkward conversation, um, that's wrong because we're not saying the truth but it's not a big deal. It's not something major. And so we don't need to go to confession to be forgiven of that but we do need to be forgiven. So If we do something like that, we need to present that to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And during this penitential act, during that moment of silence, that's when we present to God all of the small sins that we want to be forgiven. When I learned that that's what was actually happening, I would start to get frustrated when the priest or deacon would immediately jump into the next thing. So it would be like, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and... Uh, prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries, I confess to Almighty God. And I'm like, what? I didn't have any time to think! I didn't present anything to God! I'm not being forgiven. So, that's why I take, like, five to seven seconds to give everybody the opportunity to think of something, um, so that you can actually be forgiven of those things. Um, and sometimes, when people aren't used to that, like the deacon, or the musician, they're like, oh no! Nothing's happening. I guess I'm supposed to do something. And then the musician would start to play something, and it's like, no, 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 not not, not time for you to do that. Or the deacon would suddenly jump in and say something. It's like, calm down, it'll be okay. We're just remembering our sins. If you open your book, you'll see that there's option two, which I don't know any parish that has ever used option two. But it's it's a phrase in response. The priest would say, Have mercy on us, O Lord, and everyone would respond, for we have sinned against you. Then he would say, Show us, O Lord, your mercy, and grant us your salvation. Most people don't know those things. I haven't been to a parish that's ever used that. And so this will probably be the only time you hear about it. Um, So when we do have the confidior, though, we also have the absolution. So these are the words that the priest has to say. In order for you to be forgiven of your small sins that you just presented to God, he says, May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life." And we all respond, Amen. If we had the curate, I mean, if we had the confiter, we would then have the Lord have mercy follow, as we did this morning. Uh, but when we have the invocations, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, it's built into the invocations. And so we we would have that part, the Lord have mercy, before we have the absolution take place. After that, we have the Gloria. And the Gloria is a celebratory hymn. It goes all the way back to 128 AD. But if we look closely, we can actually find all the pieces of the Gloria scattered in Scripture. In fact, the very first part of it comes from the Gospel of Luke when the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people of goodwill. And so that's where we get the beginning of the Gloria. But other parts of the Gloria can be found in different places from the Psalms, from Revelations, from the Gospel of John. But what we may not always realize is that when we pray the glory be, it's actually a miniature Gloria from Mass. And when we pray the Gloria at Mass, it's like, now that we've been forgiven of our sins and we're anticipating Jesus and we're having this great celebration, we want to rejoice and celebrate. And so, in a way, it's like a miniature Christmas taking place right there at Mass, uh, because we're recalling that moment of the birth of our Lord and the joy that comes with it, and the joy that comes from being forgiven of our sins, And we have that forgiveness early on so that we can enter more fully into the celebration itself. And so we rejoice at being forgiven. And in all things and in all ways, we are to give glory to God as well. The Gloria, we do not usually have that in penitential seasons, such as Advent and Lent, because instead of focusing on the joy, we're focusing on preparation. We're focusing on sorrow for our sins. But when we get to Christmas and Easter and when we have ordinary time, or if we have any solemnities kind of scattered or sprinkled into those penitential seasons, then we do include the Gloria. So, for example, when we had the the celebration of the Immaculate Conception, we had the Gloria. But this morning, we did not. So, that's why we do it that way. After the Gloria, there's an invitation to pray. And it's not just, okay, Father's waiting for the server to bring in the book. No, it's actually the moment for us to tell God whatever it is we need to tell God at the beginning of Mass. And then we have a prayer called the Collect. And it's called the Collect because the priest is collecting everything that everyone just prayed privately to God in silence and presenting it to God on behalf of all of the people. The Collect usually starts by invoking the Heavenly Father, and then recalling some good work that he has done, and then making a request, usually asking God for his grace, and then pointing out that this is all happening through Christ our Lord. Amen. Why is it through Christ? Because it's only through Jesus who took on human flesh that we have access to the Heavenly Father. It's only through our union with Jesus through baptism and by grace that we can approach the Heavenly Father and refer to him as Father because it's through Jesus that we are adopted children of God. And so after we have the Collect, we have our opportunity to sit. And at that point, we have the Liturgy of the Word. And so the Liturgy of the Word is where we have specific sections of Scripture that are are taken for us to meditate on and consider, given our celebration at that time of the year. So it'll be different readings depending upon what time of year it is, what season it is, what celebration we have. If it's a particular saint, then readings would be chosen that either mention the saint or have a theme that was prominent in that saint's life. And if it's a Sunday in Ordinary Time, that's a time where we're looking at the teachings of Jesus, and so our readings would focus on his teachings, Now that we're in the Advent season, we're focusing on the coming of Jesus. So this weekend, we had readings that corresponded to anticipating the Messiah, the coming of the Lord, and this weekend in particular, all of our readings focused on the theme of repentance. And so we typically would have, on a Sunday, a first reading, a Responsorial Psalm, a second reading, and then we would also have a Gospel acclamation, and then the Gospel itself. The first reading is almost always taken from the Old Testament. The Old Testament helps prepare us for what's going to be revealed in the New Testament. God likes to rhyme with history. And so he gives us events in the past to help us understand what's going to happen next. He gives us things in the Old Testament to help us know what's going on in the New Testament. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, there was a king, King David. He was the greatest of all of their kings. And then, to understand Jesus, we have this reference back to King David. He's referred to often in the New Testament as Son of David. Why? Because Jesus is going to be like King David in some way. He's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There are similarities... But Jesus is the fulfillment and exceeds and surpasses what's there in the Old Testament. But we read from the Old Testament to help us understand what's being revealed to us in the New Testament. Then we have the responsorial psalm. The psalms in sacred scripture are the largest book of of the Bible. um, And they're typically in the middle of the Bible. And that's a good place for it because the Psalms actually summarize all of salvation history. There are Psalms that talk about what happened in Exodus, about the great works of God, about how he created the whole universe. There are Psalms that talk about the coming of the Messiah and what he's going to do and what happens in the end. And there's also Psalms that summarize the entirety of the human experience. There are psalms of joy and rejoicing and praising of God. There are psalms of sorrow and sadness and lamentations. And so with the psalms, we have the summary of all of human history, salvation history. And we also have the summary of the human experience here on earth. And so we have the psalms next. After that, we have the second reading. The second reading is from the New Testament. Typically, it's from one of the letters of the apostles or a letter from one of the immediate disciples of the apostles. And in those letters, we get a glimpse of what it was like for the early Christian church. And typically, those letters from the early church are talking about how we are to live our lives or helping us understand the mystery of our salvation. And so most of the New Testament is written by St. Paul. Most of the letters are written by St. Paul. So most of the time, our second reading is going to be from St. Paul, but not always, and one time I was giving a homily, and I, and I said, and in our second reading from St. Paul, blah, 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 and then later someone corrected me, actually it was from St. Peter, I was like, well, statistically I would have been right <laughs> most of the time, so second reading is from the New Testament, typically one of the letters, occasionally it'll be something else like the book of Revelations, but usually it's one of the letters. During weekday Masses, we only have one reading, a first reading. We don't typically have a second reading unless it's a special celebration. If it's a solemnity, if it's a feast day, then we could have a second reading. And the second reading, again, is from the New Testament. Now, during the Easter season, instead of an Old Testament reading, we have a reading from the Acts of the Apostles as our first reading. But otherwise, the rest of the year, the first reading is almost always from the Old Testament. When we think about the readings, it isn't just, oh, yeah, I remember that, I heard that before. No, the idea of these readings is that this is the sacred Word of God, that God wants to speak to us even now, even today. He wants to reveal something to us individually, personally. He wants us to understand Him a little better. And so when we have the readings at Mass, it isn't that we're supposed to half-heartedly listen and just kind of wait till we get to the homily because that's the exciting thing. But no, we are to listen to try to see what God may say to us during those readings. And so in the church there's a practice of a special way of listening to sacred scripture and it's called Lexio Divina or divine reading. It has four basic steps. This methodology comes from the Benedictines. The first one is to listen, and they call that lexio. So if you're reading it yourself, you're to read it in a listening kind of way, anticipating that somehow some word or phrase is going to be a message to you from God, that somehow a word or phrase is going to get your attention, and it's going to be meaningful to you. And once you have that word or phrase, you go to the next step which is meditatio or meditation, you take that word or phrase and you just kind of slowly repeat it in your mind, allowing it to sink in, giving God the opportunity to reveal what it is about that word or phrase that he's trying to to share with you, to help you understand what it is he's trying to say. Now, sometimes if you're like a, a problem solver or Um, if you like to fix things, or you just want to get to the, the point of it, you might be like, oh, I got this word or phrase. What does it mean? Let me, like, crunch this through a numerous different possibilities and try to figure it out myself. If we do that, we've stopped listening to God. So it's better for us not to try to figure out what it is this word or phrase that God has shown us is trying to tell us, but rather let God tell us. I mean, Have you ever had someone where you're trying to talk to them and they try to finish your sentence for you? That's kind of what it would be like in prayer if you did that. So we want God to reveal it to us because what he might say could be something that we never thought of. So we want to have this listening kind of approach. And then after listening for a while, we want to then talk to God about it. Uh, Sometimes as we listen closely we understand what it is he's trying to say and we're filled with joy and then we have prayers of gratitude to God for that. Sometimes when we're trying to listen, it doesn't sound like God's saying anything. What do we do then? Well, okay, then just pick a word or phrase and and keep going. And maybe you repeat it slowly to yourself and still nothing seems to be happening. What do you do then? Okay, well, you can just keep going and go to the next part and start talking to God about that word or phrase. It's like... Lord, this really didn't mean anything to me, but I had to, I had to pick something, so I picked these words. And uh, actually, they kind of remind me of this thing that happened to me long ago, and you just talk to God about it, whatever it is that comes to your mind. The fourth step is a gift from God. It's not anything we can force him to give us. It's not anything that we can require to have happen, but it's called contemplatio, or contemplation. It's where God fills us with his grace so much that we are overcome with his presence and his love. And uh, we're hyper-focused on God and that moment and just being caught up in that relationship. It's not anything that we can force or fabricate. All we can do is open ourselves up and if God wants to give us that gift, be ready to receive it. But it doesn't happen every time. The other things we can do all of those on our own, but the contemplation piece is something that God has to give us. Some people like to add a fifth step to the process, uh, where they come up with a resolution. Based upon what they heard God say to them, they would come up with something to do about it. Um, some change in their life, some new prayer. they would come up with a resolution to move forward with from their experience. And so Lexio Divina is one of the ways that we can better enter into this part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word. And during the Mass, as we're sitting, as we're listening, sitting is a position of learning. It's a position where we are meditating and we are absorbing. So if we think about the classroom, what position do students usually take? They're sitting at their desks because they're trying to learn. In these first readings in the Responsorial Psalm, we're sitting because we're trying to learn. We're trying to accept what God's giving us. We're trying to meditate on his word. But then as we get ready for the gospel, we change our position. We stand. And we do that because we're respecting the fact that Jesus is now coming to us through sacred scripture in a unique way. In the Old Testament, we're learning about Jesus, who's not yet here, but he's kind of foreshadowed we're alluding to him, we're recognizing prophecies, but once we get to the New Testament, once we get to the Gospels, now we're hearing about the words and deeds that Jesus himself said and did. And so at this point, we're respecting the fact that he's coming to us through sacred scripture. So we're standing in a position of attention, a position of respect, honoring that the Lord is coming, but also standing as a position of readiness for action, because we are to respond to the gospel message, we are to act upon the gospel message. And so we have the gospel, which means good news, and we get to the good news of Jesus Christ and his words and deeds after we have the gospel acclamation. So a lot of times we use the word alleluia, but not during the season of Lent, because that's too much of a celebratory word. Originally, it was a war cry. If we look in the Old Testament, we find that word. It's what they would say as they're running into battle. And what it means is praise the Lord. But after being victorious, they also would say alleluia. And so it kind of shifted in its meaning from a battle cry to a celebratory kind of word. And it's still used that way even today. We're celebrating that God comes to us through sacred scripture, through the gospels. And so we have that word, Alleluia, which means praise the Lord. And then we have the gospel proclaimed to us. And as the gospel is being proclaimed to us, um, there are certain things that, that we have that are a little different. One of them is it has to be a priest or a deacon. And that's because these are the words and deeds of Jesus himself. And so who better to do it than those who are ordained to be Jesus for the people? the priest, the deacon, the bishop. If they're going to have the words of Jesus said in our celebration, it makes sense that the minister ordained to be Jesus would be the one saying. And when the priest or deacon comes to the ambo to proclaim the good news, there's that greeting, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And we say, and with your spirit, because we're recognizing you are an ordained minister to do this service, this ministry for us. And then we have, um, we have the minister say, uh, we have introduced the gospel, which gospel it's from, and we have the response, glory to you, O Lord, because we're glorifying God for coming to us in this way. Then we have a certain action that only happens at this point in Mass. It's the triple sign of the cross. Now, when I first came back to Mass, and I saw people doing that, I didn't know what they were doing, and I thought they were just kind of like wiggling their thumb over themselves, and I was like, well, that's weird, but if that's what everybody else is doing, that's what I'll do too. And then when I discovered, no, it's actually making the sign of the cross, I was like, well, that means a lot more, doesn't it? But why is it that we do that? It's because the gospel, which we are entering into, is something that should always be on our minds, always on our lips, and always in our hearts. And so we do that action to recall that that's what we should be doing with the gospel, that it should always be on our minds, on our lips, and on our hearts. And the gospel, of course, means good news. And so after it's proclaimed, we have the phrase, the gospel of the Lord. And everyone responds, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We're praising him for coming to us. We're praising him for the gift of salvation, and all the other things that he's done. And after that, we have the homily. Now, the homily means explanation. The point of the homily is to help us understand, we just heard these readings, we had the responsorial psalm, what does it mean and how does it apply to us today? And so, that's what the minister should be trying to accomplish for you, to help you understand what we just heard and how to act upon it. Now, let's be honest, some people preach a little better than others, so sometimes it can be a little challenging to to sit there and be attentive to the homily. Uh, So what are some of the things that we can do, though, during that time to help us be attentive? Well, first thing is you can pray for the preacher. Pray that the Holy Spirit's going to work through him. Pray that somehow God's going to help everyone present have a deeper experience and encounter with Jesus Christ. Sometimes as I'm preaching, I would go off on a tangent, and I would think to myself, well, that was kind of weird. That wasn't the point of my homily. Um, And then I would go back to my predetermined statements, and then so on and so forth. And we get to the end of Mass, and I'm greeting people, and someone would come up and say, Father, oh, you did such a great job. What you said in the homily was great. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, all of these things that I had planned out and chose to put in there, and they would say, oh, this thing that you said, it was the tangent that I had no intention of saying and it was really meaningful to them. And I was like, oh, okay, well, good job, Holy Spirit. (laughs) So you want to pray for the preacher. Pray that God's going to work through him. Pray that the Holy Spirit works through him in order to reach you, in order to help you. But also anticipate that God is actually going to do that. If you come expecting the homily to be boring and that you're not going to get anything out of it, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, oh, there's Father Lampy again. I guess I'm going to sleep for the next 15 minutes. Uh, no, if you, if you come anticipating, he's going to say something meaningful, and I want to be ready for when that nugget, that gem, that jewel that God is going to offer through the preacher is given, I want to be ready to receive it. Um, sometimes people would, would say things like, that passage never made any sense to me, but when you explained it, it was so meaningful. And if they're listening, then they could understand it better. If they're anticipating that God's going to give them something, they'll be ready to receive it. And then also just be mindful that what God gives may not be just a greater understanding of Scripture, but it may be the personal message, the answer to a prayer that that you've been just kind of working on. Sometimes people would come up to me after Mass and say, Father, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And maybe that time it actually was what I planned to say. But uh, but God can speak to us specifically and individually. Something that maybe we've been praying about for a long time, if we're ready for it, if we're anticipating, then we can receive that gift. uh, If we have God work through the preacher, if we're ready to receive it. And so it can make a huge difference in what's going on for us. I remember one time at the seminary someone was preaching and I thought it was terrible and I decided to share my misery with another seminarian and, um, and then I also decided to try to do that with a, with a professor and as soon as I thought, said something like, oh, what did you think of that homily? You know, anticipating him to think it was bad like I did, instead he started talking about how great it was and all the things he got out of it and I was like, did we hear the same thing? Because that is not what happened for me. And then I thought about it and I was like, okay, I I was not really in a good place when I was trying to listen to that homily, so that's why I didn't get anything out of it. But after we had the gospel, we sat for the homily, because the homily is a place where we're trying to learn, where we're trying to meditate and understand. But then we stand again for the creed. Why? Because standing is a position of action, and the creed is our declaration of faith. So faith is based on what is heard. We just heard the gospel. We just heard the readings. We just heard the homily. And now it's time for us to act, to respond to what we heard. And we act by declaring our faith by reciting the creed, declaring our faith in the triune God, and working our way through all of these different statements of what it is we actually believe as a community. The creed is said on Sundays and solemnities. And... Um, not said typically during the week, unless during the week it's a solemnity. Um, I'll skip the detailed explanation of the creed because I do want to give you the opportunity to ask questions. Um, So after the creed, we continue with that same concept of acting on our faith with the prayers of the faithful. So it isn't just, okay, somebody said something, yeah, we pray to the Lord, but we're actually talking to God. We're actually requesting something. We just declared and manifested our faith in the creed. Now, because we have this belief in a God who loves us, we're going to actually ask him to do these things for us. We wouldn't be asking God for something if we didn't believe that God could do something about it. We wouldn't be asking God for something if we didn't hope that he was going to do something about it. We wouldn't be asking God for something unless we knew that he actually loved us and cared about us. And so the prayers of the faithful are prayers on our behalf, making these requests to God, expecting he will actually respond and give us um, what it is that we need. Sometimes we don't always ask for what we need, and sometimes we ask for things that aren't the greatest. Uh, But when we pray to God with faith, Sometimes he answers us in the ways we don't expect. And so sometimes we think God is saying no. But really, he would be saying, I have something better. God never really says an explicit no, and I'm not going to do anything for you. But rather, he appreciates the fact that we're reaching out to him, even if it's not the best thing for us. But instead, he has something better to give us, a better response to our request. And so we act in faith, And we make these requests to God the Father. And when we finish with the petitions, that concludes the liturgy of the Word. One of the things when it comes to Scripture, as I said before, almost the entire Mass is a direct quote, a paraphrase, or an allusion to something straight from Scripture. When we talk about the readings, it is a direct reading from Scripture. Sometimes people would say, but you're not reading from the Bible. It's like, well, technically, no. We're reading from what's called the lectionary. Lectionary means uh, book of readings. And these readings are passages from the Bible that are rearranged for that particular season. So for example, our readings today, we had Old Testament, Responsorial Psalm, New Testament, Gospel. We have them all one after the other. So all we have to do is flip one page, and the next minister can read the right thing. Imagine if we were trying to read from the Bible each time and each person would come up, we'd have to find the exact spot and then look for the right verses. But we could always, if we already know what they are, let's just like put them together in a collection where it's clear and easy for us to read. So we are reading from the Bible in as much as the passages in the lectionary are from the Bible. And when we want to understand the readings, It's good not only to have a good homily, but also to have good commentaries. And so there are good Catholic authors that help explain what it is that's going on in the sacred scripture, that can give us context and clues. Um, We are in the second cycle for our Sunday readings, cycle B, and that is the Gospel of Mark. So... After the Second Vatican Council, they decided instead of a one-year cycle of readings, let's have a three-year Sunday cycle of readings. And each year would correspond to one of the three synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning like similar. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say very similar things. So we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, throughout the year. And this year, year B, is Mark. So the books that I have that are commentaries up here are all ones on Mark. But I have them up here so you can see the series that they are. This one is the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Um, Each one in this series is written by a different author. uh, But they have a commentary on all the different books of the Bible. This is from the series, the Navare Bible. Um, So this comes from the Opus Dei organization or group. And that was founded by Saint Jose Maria Escrivá. This is the uh, Ignatius Catholic Study Bible New Testament. It has commentary from Dr. Scott Hahn. So these are all good options to help you understand more clearly what's going on in Scripture. There's lots and lots of other commentaries as well, but most of my books are still in boxes. So I just grabbed a few that I could find and brought them here. Uh, To show you, to give you some sense, some idea of what would be good commentaries to read. And so that's actually another way to prepare for Mass. Uh, The readings are easy to find. You can go to the USCCD website, uh, Daily Readings, and find out what readings we have for that Sunday. You can look at them in advance and know what those readings are. Um, If you're here in the church, you can look at our Breaking Bread hymnal. You can go to that particular Sunday, and you would find in there the readings for that particular Sunday and you can read in our hymnal those readings and so if for whatever reason it's difficult to listen to or hear uh, the person reading maybe they're new at reading and they have the microphone like way away from their face and you can't really hear them um, if you still wanted to know what was being said you can follow along in the hymnal and so you can find out what those readings are before mass you can get a good commentary you can pray Lectio Divina with those readings and you can listen attentively to what the Lord may have to say to you. And then at Mass, the Lord may have even more to say to you when you get there. But because you've prepared yourself, you're even more ready to receive whatever it is that God wants to give. So that would would bring us all the way through the Liturgy of the Word. So uh, I would now like to open it up for anyone who may have any questions. Uh, what I've covered so far in our series. You ready to Yes? are we the church? When we strike our breast three times, what are we doing here? Good question. So, during the confedia, uh, we strike our breast three times. Why do we doing that? What are doing now? That's actually a reference back to what Jesus told us in the Gospel of Luke when he gave the parable about the Pharisees. And the tax collector. They're both there in the temple. And he says that the Pharisee was talking to himself, saying, Oh God, I am so glad I'm not this terrible sinners like this tax collector. I tithe and I blah 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 blah. And he's all talking to himself. But then Jesus mentions the tax collector, who won't even raise his head. Instead, he's bowed down to the Lord and he's just acknowledging that. Is we're imitating that tax collector in error, as a sign of our repentance, as a sign of our acknowledgement we made our state. as a sign that this is our fault and we could have done otherwise. We're repenting, showing sorrow for our sins by striking ourselves in the chest, just like the tax collector did in parallel. Good question. Other questions? Yes. You mentioned- Good question. So. Um Based upon what it is we're trying to accomplish during that day or that season, so during ordinary time, like I said, uh, we're going through the different teachings of Jesus. The only exception with that is when we come to uh, the second reading, which is typically a letter from Saint Paul. Um, it's a semi-continuous passage of that second reading, so we'll get a piece of Second Corinthians, and then the next portion of Second Corinthians, and then the next portion, whereas the So the gospel would be kind of following So that we have that passage because we kind of run out of our activity from. So uh, that's the sort kind of We kind of scattered out, and then we we'll also have working down very during near uh, reading. Other questions? Yes. Can you explain why we found During Free? Good question. So Vermin Free, and maybe a lot of people don't recognize this, uh, if you actually Down from heaven and became one with us. So if you look in the book, it says that the words that follow, up to man included, and including, and became man, all bow. So when we we're saying the words by the Holy Spirit, most the is originary and being man. We should be bowed down. Not like a head mouth, but an actual, deep, profound bow. Because we're lowering ourselves in acknowledgement of how Jesus lowered. From here, where we actually genuflect there and and those two times would be the solemnity of the Annunciation, March twenty fifth, and Christmas, December twenty fifth, because those are the times that we especially recognize God coming down from heaven and taking on human flesh. Other questions? Yes. Why is the ninth considered more solemn? Why is the Nicene Creed considered more solemn than the Apostles Creed? So the Apostles Creed is believed to go back to the Apostles themselves or Apostolic times. The Nicene Creed came about, uh, I think, in 325 AD from the Council of Nicaea. And then it was further amended at the Council of Constantinople. And there was solemnly inserted into, uh, into the Mass. Because it was a way of fighting off heresies. So, even at the very beginning of the time that Jesus uh, established his church, there were different people who decided to do a spin off of the Catholic faith and go in a different direction. Uh, One of the popular ones was the heresy of Uh, Arianism. But the Arians believe that Jesus was not actually God. That Jesus was like this superhuman, and he was blessed by God, but he wasn't God himself. And so, in order to help us understand this really is God, and that's really what we believe, we have that explicitly stated in the creed. that when we talk about Jesus, we say that he is son of God, we say that he is only God son of God, born of God from God. We're making it clear. He is God. And He comes from the Father who is also God. Light from light. Sometimes we call God pure light. True God from true God. We're, we're really coming in there. Jesus, God, Jesus, God, Jesus, God. So we're making it very clear that we are not variants it and this is so the truth faith. So the Nicene Creed became very important in order to. to defend and those characters. And it does not work explicitly in the Apostles' which is why we typically do that scene three. It goes a little deeper into the history as well. Good question. Any others? All right, so we're a couple minutes past the hour. We'll go ahead and close in prayer. And if you have any further questions, I'd be happy to answer them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many ways that you come to us and reveal yourself to us, especially how you come to us in the celebration of the Mass. We thank you for how you reveal yourself to us through the Sacred Word, and through your Sacred Word, prepare us to receive you as you come to us in the Eucharist. Please help us to enter more deeply into these mysteries and to recognize you in all the ways that you come to us. And help us to have a retentive memory that we may take what we've received from this session into our future celebrations of the Mass. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everyone.